Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Juicing the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Tracy. Hi. And welcome to this episode of the show. Uh, we're talking about two more Golden Globe nominee winner situations as we prep for the Oscar nominee winner situations. Uh, that is the 2021 films, The Lost Daughter, and the tragedy of Macbeth. Uh, Corbin, where would you like to start today if you have a preference? Mildly indifferent, as always. All right, then uh, let's start with The Lost Daughter because that is what is first on my computer screen. And that's usually my process here. Uh, All right, so The Lost Daughter was directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal. It was written for the screen by Maggie Gyllenhaal based on the novel by Elena Ferrante. It stars Olivia Coleman, Jesse Buckley, and Dakota Johnson. Uh, also, shout out Ed, Hel- Ed Harris, looking crazy old in this movie. Um, and Peter oh, Scars. I, I just have to picture Ed Helms in that role now. Yeah, right. Um, also, shout out to Peter Sarsgaard acting like just in the in the thicket of a beard. Uh, really, just heavy, heavy beard acting there. Uh, I have no information about what this film might have potentially costed or costed cost um or what it could have taken like imdb claims its box office was fifty four thousand dollars, but again this is a i think a netflix movie so we're not going to have any of that information and that really takes some wind out of the sales of that segment because i do like talking about how much money movies make even though it is movie accounting is the same thing as the ramps cap space it's all made up um i have no tagline so no tagline. This film was nominated for several Golden Globes. It was nominated for actually it was nominated for uh, two Golden Globes. Best performance by an actress in a motion picture drama for Olivia Coleman and best director motion picture for Maggie Gyllenhaal. It did not win either of them, but it was nominated in both categories. The film is about a woman's beach vacation takes a dark turn when she begins to confront the troubles of her past. Uh, this was my pick so i will get started here uh this was an interesting watch for me because uh i i love olivia coleman i i think she's fantastic and i think she's fantastic in this and i also am growing to be quite a fan of jesse buckley who was also uh the, a star of one of the movies we've talked about previously on this show um i'm thinking of ending things and i thought she was great in that but she was fantastic in this uh, i really think you know, the, the two like main female leads here really did some phenomenal work. But the what the story was trying to convey, I don't think ever really landed for me. And it's that part that I struggle with. In addition to how the story was presented with kind of like a, a, a dark and foreboding kind of tone, almost like verging on thriller-ish. And yet it wanted all of this sympathy and empathy at the same time as feeling as though there was a buildup towards something catastrophic. It was, it was very, I kept feeling like it was leading up to something that just never really came. And I felt like this movie was edging me. Right. Yeah, it was. It felt like it was edging you towards like this big emotional climax where you were just going to like break down. And honestly, it never really got there. 
And more than just that, I don't really, I'm not sure I really got what it was trying to say at the end of it. So I really like the acting. And I think everybody in this film really nails it. I, I think Olivia Coleman does a great job. Jesse Buckley does a great job. And Harris does a great job. Peter Sarsgaard does a great job. Everybody, actually, I take that back. Everybody but Dakota Johnson. Dakota Johnson was fucking awful <laughs> in this. Oh my God, she was fucking awful in this. Um, but everybody not named Dakota Johnson did a great job acting in this. But I just not, I'm just not sure I ever actually cared. You know? I'm I, curious to hear your thoughts. They are the exact same thoughts. And every time you started with something, I was like, okay, yeah, I agree with that. We'll see where it goes. And it's like, but... Okay, that's actually the exact same point. And also, oh, okay, so we watched the same movie at the same time in the same state of mind because I agree 100% with everything. The acting was great for everyone not named Dakota Johnson, who, I mean, I don't think she did anything bad. I mean, it was a totally, it just wasn't up to... No, I'd say she was objectively bad. There was there was a scene where, where Olivia Coleman cries because of something near the end of the movie, and Dakota Johnson just kind of stares at her and, and like nods her head and is like, Yeah. And I learned the count and I was like, Dakota Johnson like is giving her like nothing such, in this character. Like I just I've met people who are just like young, kind of burnt out beach people who are at a point where like this is just a couple years past my age group and just all of that going on and they're just kind of like that and I thought okay like this isn't anything special because there's nothing to really dig into here but I just feel like that's the exact character she's portraying and I don't have to care about how emotional she's getting because it's Olivia Coleman and actress whose name I've already forgotten Jesse Buckley uh, but you see, I, I would buy that if they didn't paint Dakota Johnson as like supposing to have some grip over your feelings, because, you know, like the way Olivia Coleman's character looks at Dakota Johnson, it's supposed to be like she's reflecting on her own past at this stage in her life and motherhood, you know, years gone by. And she's, you know, I guess, like living vicariously or or having Dakota Johnson's character be a muse of some kind or a portal of some kind into her own past. And then Dakota Johnson's just like, I'm just here in my mid to late twenties and uh, attractive. And, but it, it kept giving the impression that we were supposed to care about Dakota Johnson and what she was going through. And Dakota Johnson's action acting just made you go, <laughs> Oh man, you're just like a warm body on camera. Yeah, uh, honestly, I don't even really care to keep digging into Dakota Johnson because it's such a nothing part of the movie. Like when when Olivia Coleman caught her making out with that dude that wasn't her husband, I was like, "Oh, were we supposed to care about her this whole time?" Like I I spent this whole movie completely not concerned with what was happening with Dakota Johnson because I assumed it was just a, a ragtag B-plot at best and now I'm supposed to care that she's like almost cheating on her husband on vacation because boy, I do not. Yeah, I honestly didn't even notice it was not her husband at first because I just really wasn't Same. paying all that much attention and it was just like, oh, okay. Yeah, that seems like a very likely thing for this type of character to do. I am not surprised in the slightest. Okay. 
So this was an, an interesting movie because when it starts off with like all these ominous feelings and you see the kids and there's some flashback to her own kids, I thought that one of the kids was going to die. Also, whether, too. whether like, it be like the haven't... present day kid or her kids in the past, I thought there was going to be a kid death. I thought it was when they were, she was searching for the lost child. It like cut to the scene where she's laying in the water on the beach and it's angled in a way where you don't immediately recognize that it's an adult sized body. And it's like, oh, she lost her kid at a beach. The kid died. She's distraught by this. That's why all these emotions are coming up and we're going to get back to these, you know, arguably better uh, or, you know, a deeper emotional storyline. And it just like wasn't even close. No, it was just that. <sighs> so, all right. So I, I guess let's just kind of plow through it a little bit to get farther in so we can talk about it a little, little bit more in depth. It, it, oh god, I did not enjoy this that much. Um, so Olivia Coleman ends up stealing like this doll, and you spend more time in the flashbacks, which honestly were so much more interesting than the the present day shots because Olivia Coleman doesn't do much. I thought she was wonderful on screen, but they really had her characters just like I'm at the beach and I don't really talk to many people. I'm at home and I don't like at Harris's advances all the time. And it was just like a lot of that, whereas at least Jesse Buckley's version of the character was doing a little bit more, more people in the house, more social interaction, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, you you see that she's, as a younger woman, uh, kind of caught at, at like a, a, a crossroads of sorts where she is trying to make advances in her career and she is trying to feel like an independent person or at least maybe clamoring for that internally, some level of independence. But in her actual grounded life, she is a married woman with two children and her children are, and here's another question I'm going to ask you. Her children are irritating? Because really, it seemed like they were being super cute all the time and she was just getting frustrated because they were present. Yeah, like, don't get me wrong. Like, I understand how kids can genuinely get annoying when you're around them for so long. At the same time, like, it's not like they did anything that you wouldn't expect, you know, any fucking kid ever to do. Yeah, outside of the one time the kid slapped her. Like, that was the only time that one of the kids actually did something where I was like, oh, that is genuinely annoying. Like the rest of the time, it's just a six-year-old kind of just being a six-year-old. But again, the way that the story is framed, I felt like we were supposed to feel as though the kids were grading on her. Like, do you remember, did you ever watch the movie Babadook? No. Well, in, in the film, which is an actual psychological horror movie, um, unlike this, which is partly just kind of masquerading as it, uh, the main character, the protagonist is a woman with a very difficult kid. And they paint the kid as very fucking difficult. They don't necessarily paint the kid as being like malicious because the kid has, I think, like autism or something like that. But the kid is very, very difficult. And it is clear to you as a viewer that that is what is happening. It's wearing on the mother's 
psyche. This just feels like here's a here's a couple kids being adorable. Ooh, don't you hate it? And it's like, no, those kids seem super adorable. And I understand, like you said, that it seems like it's a small living space. And I'm sure it can be difficult balancing everything. But it seems like what you're balancing is a rewarding career that you're doing very well in and two awesome kids who are very cute. Like, it, it seemed like a very weird problem to have to try to convey. Right. It, again, her career it, seems successful. Yeah, and it didn't really seem like anything was hindered by having to work at home. Or at least live as the way she was living, you know, up until this point. Right. It like, did not seem at all like anything was amiss. So, so what do you think then the movie was trying to say? Because from what I captured from it, she had a supportive, loving husband. She had two super cute kids. She had a rewarding career, but maybe she didn't just didn't like having such a normal life and was looking for more adventure. Uh, that's that's the best I think I have at this exact moment. Like, like, what do you think we're supposed to feel for the young version for Jesse Buckley's character? Uh, just, I think there's some level of remorse you are supposed to feel about the regret she has for a mistake, like the way she, like the misguided way she viewed parenthood and being a mom. And it's like, oh, that sucks that like she lost out on that. Oh, but at the same time, like she didn't really show much if any remorse as an adult. So I have no fucking idea. I, I audibly said to Quinn after this movie ended, uh, I don't know what the fuck that movie was supposed to tell me. Yeah, because that's the thing. And we're jumping ahead a little bit, but who cares? Because um, you're right. Like that was the other part. When you shows adult Olivia Coleman, she's like, yeah, I regret fucking nothing. She's like, I made all those choices in the past and I'm good, dog. Like, it was right for me. And you're like, well, if it was right for you and you emotionally understand that, why do we care? What is there to be shown? What was the point of this entire film? Like, what is, because that's like straight up. It's like, imagine every movie with any type of conflict also showed you 20 years after the fact when everyone fully moved on and no one cared anymore. That's what this movie does. There's the young version of just of uh, Olivia Coleman's character who has is clearly going through something. And then there's the older version, which is Olivia Coleman, who is just like, I don't care. I am divorced, happily so. I am back in contact with my kids because I want to be, and they're cool with that. We've all moved on. Uh, and I'm traveling in my successful career and passing along the advice to do the exact same thing to other women. <laughs> so I'm good. Yeah, it was almost like a way of saying, yeah, if you actually do want to abandon your family, like, go for it. Like, there's really not as many repercussions as one would think. Why don't you come back in a couple of years? Yeah, and that's the, it seemed like it was framing it as an empowerment kind of thing. Like, you know, I left because I wanted to, and I came back because I wanted to, and you should move through life doing what you want to do as a woman because that is your right. And I think that to a certain extent, 
is probably correct to a certain extent. And I think that is an interesting premise, but I don't think it's really played out well here at all. Yeah, like if that's really what you're trying to say, then it's a little fucked up and I don't really appreciate it, but okay. Yeah, it, it, like literally I, part of the message of this movie is motherhood is hard and you can just stop if you feel like it. Right. <laughs> like, but also, and that's what I'm getting that from earlier with the Dakota Johnson character of that then requires you to care at least a little bit about what Dakota Johnson's going through so that it can mirror what you see Jesse Buckley going through. And then Dakota Johnson's just fucking awful. She's just fucking awful. Like you see Dakota Johnson or um, uh, Jesse Buckley, like laying it. All, she is doing so much to carry that character and her present day equivalent to Dakota Johnson's just like, I am here. And it's just so fucking bad. So you're telling me there is not a sex dungeon in this movie? No, this is not a a fifth installment of the Fifty Shades sequel. I don't know how many how many movies they made of that. Well, then, what are we even doing here? Where is Mister Gray? I, I like. What do you think the relationship? we see what Ed Harris is supposed to be. Cause that also really confused me. Like, I don't know. I thought it was her like, okay, let me, I fucked up my first marriage somehow. We'll see about that in flashbacks later on. Maybe, you know, I have a way of redeeming this aspect of my failed life, you know, finally fulfilling myself. And it's like, no, you just uh, don't give a shit about, you know, partners or anything. So yeah. Cool. Good for you. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like it, 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 you know, the fact that it's not stereotypical. I'm not saying it's necessarily bad because that is how you create more depth in characters by moving on from stereotypes. But she doesn't have the usual like kind of classic aloofness of, yeah, I could have sex with this guy. Or I could not. Like, I could have a little vacation tryst, or I could just be me. Like, it seems like she's got a wall up in a lot of ways, but is also being very playful. But And that's how one of the ways I think it's pretty easy to tell that this was a book um, because clearly there's an internal monologue happening there that we just don't get. And it's not obvious based on the character's motivations because you're not even spending 100% of this film in the present day. You're spending a lot of it in past and the past is not informed on the present version of why she's battling with this relationship because her the, the flashbacks are mostly focused on her relationship with her kids and then secondly her relationship with that professor guy and her relationship with her husband to inform the seriousness or lack thereof of a romantic relationship is really left to the wayside yeah i really don't i didn't know this movie was a book to begin with um but i really do not enjoy the adaption i don't think it was well done if you really can't like i get there's a lot of information you have to cut out in order to make that work as a film but you missed some exposition points that kind of were needed and it yeah because it's like uh it's like the scene where olivia coleman's eating her dinner at the bar and etta harris comes up to her and there he's talking and you can tell she does not want him there and then she basically says leaving the fuck alone so i can eat and then in the next beat of the movie she does not finish eating her food 
goes over and like flirts with Ed Harris a little bit and then just leaves. And it's wildly confusing because that does not lead to a, a sexual relationship of any kind. And there's nothing in there, that scene or any of the subsequent scenes to really inform on why she would have such a big pivot in that exact moment. And it, it that would be something that would be filled in with, again, an internal monologue in a book that just seems so off-putting on screen without any additional context. It's not like it's off-putting. It's just like it doesn't exist. There is no monologue or internal monologue. Like there's just... Not like I, we are huge fans of show, don't tell and just showing someone the story, but there's really nothing to see from the way they showed it. And if you're not going to tell us, that just means we don't know anything and we just have to take everything at face value. And since there's just piecemealed context that I just don't know how you can really get anything from this. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I, I mean, because it's not even like we need exposition or we need a voiceover. Like there's literally nothing else in any part of the film really that says anything about this relationship turn that you can use to inform or, or backfill some understanding of the scenes. And, and that's just going to make that's going to make for a pretty rough viewing experience, if we're being honest here, which is why I'm not surprised to see Olivia Colman get a nomination for this. I am surprised to see Maggie Gyllenhaal get a nomination for this. And I'm also surprised that Jesse Buckley did not get a nomination for this. Um, like, like, I would swap Gyllenhaal for Buckley in, in an instant because I I do not think Maggie Gyllenhaal did a great job here. No, I don't either. Um, I'm very surprised by Buckley. More so with her getting a rook. Um, nomination rather than Gyllenhaal not getting, or Gyllenhaal getting one. Fuck, you right. know what I'm trying to say. I, yeah, yeah. I think this is a very weak year for the Oscars and I think that would be that showing. It's really but looking again, like it. This is crazy. All the more reason why Buxley not being nominated is kind of a huge surprise. Yeah, I, I you know, uh, we're recording this on February 1st, so one week from today as we're recording will be when the nominations are officially announced, February 8th. So we'll find out if, you know, the Golden Globes are a good indicator, but they're not 100%. Like when we did this last year, we had films that were nominated for Oscars or people who were nominated for Oscars that were not nominated for Globes. So certain, you know, certainly things can can change. But uh, yeah, weird, very weird, but whatever. Uh, let's do a final rating and review on this because I think we've exhausted a lot of the main points and I don't have anything super creative left to say. Um, this was my movie, so I will start. Look, this is a Netflix movie, so if you are, like, dying for something to watch and want to stay up on awards season, like, go for it. I don't think this is prohibitively bad. Like, I don't think you're going to claw your eyes out at it, but I also am not sure if what you're going to take away from it. It doesn't really seem to have a thesis, and it doesn't seem to really offer any information as to like the human experience, the motherhood experience, the the female experience that I I think really would make an impact. It just seems to kind of be, it's it's like a story that nobody asked for that's acted very well, but really just kind of is there. Um, I think I give this a two out of five. Right there with you. Two out of five. 
Fucking all right. Or two simpatico. I sure do not have anything additional to add as a final review. All right, that's fine, man. Let's uh let's hop on over then to uh, uh Black and Whitesville in the tragedy of Macbeth, which also came out 2021. This was written and directed by Joel Cohen, based on the play by Billy Shakes, William Shakespeare, the Bard. Um, this film stars Denzel Washington, Francis McDormand, and Alex Hassel, um, as well as a killer performance um, from Catherine Hunter, which we will we'll get to, I'm sure. Uh, this film, do we have an estimated budget? Uh, I don't see one. Damn, I'd actually love to know this movie's budget. Uh, IMDb claims that the, the gross of this film is $362,000. This is, again, an, a streaming release. This is an Apple release. Um, so I don't know how they would get that. It's who cares, Phil, for me. Uh, but whatever. Uh, this film also doesn't have a tagline. So skipping that, this movie was nominated for uh, one single Golden Globe, which is kind of wild. It was nominated for Best Performance by an Actor in a Motion Picture Drama for Denzel Washington. Um, so we will see how that translates to Oscars in about a week. The film is about a Scottish lord who becomes convinced by a trio of witches that he will become the next king of Scotland and his ambitious wife supports him in his plans of seizing power. Corwin, this was your pick, so you can get us started. Um, I, uh, I've never read Macbeth, which makes it kind of a difficult watch, um, especially as someone who does not really take well to auditory learning. So something as complicated as just Shakespearean English uh, to kind of just figure out as you're watching a movie uh, leads for a very <laughs> surface level watch. Uh, but I will say the surface level in which I lived for two hours was unbelievable. Um, one of the most beautifully shot films I've ever watched, just the style and sharpness, just loved every bit of it. Um, and I thought the acting was absolutely tremendous all around. Um, but I had to Google uh, what Macbeth, Mac, Macbeth uh, story was, and I did not get any of the intricacies of the dialogue. Uh, yeah, I'm right there with you. I read this in high school, I think. Um, how much of that's been retained? Well, based on this viewing experience, almost none. Um <laughs> But, you know, it's a Shakespeare play, which means that the plot uh, sure isn't going to be hard to follow. So that makes it a lot easier. It, it's almost like watching a foreign language film with the subtitles off um, is really what this is. If we're being because the actors speak at a normal speech, like it's, it's at a very normal cadence, which when you don't understand fully what they're saying, makes it sound like they're speaking 10,000 words per, per minute. Um so, yeah, right there with you, did not retain any of it. But, man, this movie did such a fucking good job of making the sets feel small and tight like a stage production exactly. while also making them feel gigantic. 
and mm-hmm. adding a feeling of larger than life. Like a lot you're of looking, vertical space, a lot of vertical space, a lot of um, uncertain depth in the in the background with, you know, the use of lighting and, and all the fog machines that they had going off. And that really like stood out because not only was it fascinating to look at, but you also know Macbeth is a play. Um, you should anyway. Oh. It's 400 years old. <laughs> I'm aware so, of what it is. I'm aware of roughly the idea that Macbeth goes crazy for Pat. Well, no, I mean, I'm saying you should know that uh, it like, is a play, not that not what uh, the play is about. Yes. You should know that it is a play. And so that much. Yes. And so seeing how Joel Cohen kind of set this up to have both these concepts of size and to not really extend the universe of Macbeth at all. You know what I mean? Like he's not creating so much additional ambiance and atmosphere to the, to the sets. You know, they really are very like minimalistic, very bare bones, very tight, but also, you know, with so much like grandness to them that it doesn't feel like you have to do much more than have the acting be there because everything else, because if they try to like really doll this up and go full bore on castle stuff, you know what I mean? Like it would be a wildly different viewing experience because not only now am I paying attention to the acting, the set design is going to be wildly different. The way that the actors will be playing off the set will be different. The way that it'll just feel for you will be wildly different. Whereas this has, this has like a, like a passion of Joan of Arc feel to it. Like it really feels like you're watching a silent film that also has sound. It's fascinating. I understand why they they basically wrote it to be just verbatim William Shakespeare. Um, I would love to see an additional version where they act this out in a more modern, um, you know, I guess language, because it would be considered a different language at this point. Regardless, I would love to see that juxtaposition. And being able to see what all of these truly great actors are able to do when they can kind of not express themselves, but make it so that I could understand their expressions just a little better. Because I think that would be amazing. I, you know, I I don't even feel like, I was going to say, I don't even feel like I need that, if we're being honest. Like, I'm totally cool not fully getting all of the dialogue because they they again it's a Shakespeare play which means that what is happening is perfectly well obvious even if you're not following with the words super tightly because it's like seeing a king get murdered it's like oh yeah they were probably talking about that (laughs) you know what I mean it's probably a widely regarded uh dick move okay yeah yeah there's not there's not a lot of superfluous dialogue in a shakespeare play in the extent of like side conversation or non-immediately pertinent information a lot of it's like shakespearean dialogue is superfluous in its language but it's not like they're having a conversation that isn't going to be directly addressed very soon (laughs) so i mean 
the way it's kind of structured, you can very quickly pick up at least half of the information that's getting, you know, expressed. You can get right. enough to get by. It's not like you're, it's a complete different language. Right. And so I, I yeah, I'm totally cool with that. I mean, I would love to be able to understand what the fuck they were saying, <laughs> but it, it doesn't, it doesn't take me out too, too much. Um, and there's really just like how they approach this, I thought was so fucking cool. You know, like it really did feel like I already said, like passion of Joan of Arc or, you know, some like even to a certain extent, some old like German expressionist stuff. Like they really nailed the horror feel of whenever um, what's her fuck. I just fucking said it. Catherine Hunter, I think uh, was on screen like they did. Yeah. Catherine Hunter. They did such a great job of making it feel ominous and creepy and sinister, which sounds so dumb when you think about what the context of this film is, which is I'm going to go kill the king so I can be king because some fucking witches fucking told me to. And it's like, yeah, this is a tragedy. Of course, it's going to feel sinister. But that's part of the thing that that makes I, I think gets lost in the dialogue of Shakespeare which is there's almost a, like when I picture Shakespeare, I don't know about you. I want to hear about you. Uh, I picture like, I picture Lawrence Olivier just chewing scenery. And I love Lawrence Olivier, but I picture Lawrence Olivier, like, you know, skull in hand doing Hamlet soliloquies. Very, very like posh and proper and pretty, you know, very, very, elegant when the reality of the context of especially this play is betrayal and murder and you know all these horrible horrible things witches coming down from the heavens to tell you that you you, you know people gonna gonna die and that's what this film does a really good job of bringing out that again sounds so fucking stupid and obvious maybe if i took more lit classes or you know spent more time paying attention to theater when I was younger or today for that matter, uh, I, I would be more attuned to, but for an average kind of play consumer, an average Shakespeare consumer, which is not much, it really drove home the point or, or the, the, the general feeling, which is some dark fucking shit's gonna be going down. I picture Romeo plus Juliet, so I get it. Um, honestly, I don't know enough Shakespeare Shakespeare to really have like an honest like umbrella interpretation or not even interpretation, but I don't know, overall theme of what his work is like outside of like the two I know. But I mean, it's never like bright and shiny and happy, and everybody goes home all okay. I guess I guess at the end of the day, I am not well versed enough to really add any structured addition to this conversation. That's fair. Um, so I guess we'll talk about some of the other stuff that we actually can talk about, which is the acting. Um, there are some big names in this, namely 
the man who was nominated for the old Golden Globe of this movie, which is Denzel Washington, also Francis McDormand, uh, Brendan Gleeson's in this. Those are, I think, the, the biggest names. And man, they're great. They're, they're phenomenal. Denzel, man, just fucking shines in this. He's had some questionable movie choices the last couple of years. Um, just some kind of fun paychecks. Just, all right, this is going to be three weeks of work of lines I don't need to memorize. And I'm going to get like $7 million, which is great. Um, but he is like, I don't want to say he's a generational actor because that's a term that I don't think we should just throw around willy nilly. But he's a guy you should at least have a conversation about because he's so fucking good. When he turns it on and he really like puts his heart into a role, he is unbelievable. And I love him in this. He really is, man. Like, you know, he, and especially again in Shakespeare, where the number of people in a scene at a given time are usually pretty small which really is makes it difficult as an actor because you have less to play off of. You have fewer exchanges in your dialogue. A lot more of it is monologue and soliloquy driven. And you have fewer people that you can look to to shift your focus, to shift your, uh, your, the way that you're standing, your posture, uh, to, to shift to whom you're addressing and how you're going to inflect your voice. It really is a lot of chewing scenery. And that is actually very difficult to do, even though it's kind of a term for someone who's just hamming it up, it is hard when you are by yourself or for significant chunks of dialogue. And Denzel fucking nails it, man. Same thing with Francis McDormand. Both of them kill it. I, I mean, but like you get so many of these like really tight shots on Denzel's face, you know, as as he becomes the Mad King after you know after a certain point in the film. And he is, he's just there, man. He's just in the pocket in this. Honestly, let's give it up as well to just the entire cast of the fourth Harry Potter movie because they killed it, you know, the first 10 minutes of this film. Um, but truly, I mean, Denzel and Francis Dorman, I mean, those are two Mount Rushmore actors of this generation. I mean, they're unreal in. Again, that's the exact same thing you could say for Denzel Washington, except that Francis McDormand doesn't really pick easy layup roles of just a paycheck and a vacation. Like she is excellent in everything she does. Yeah, I think mean, you know, you almost want to like roll your eyes a little bit and be like, oh, of course it's a Joel Cohen or Cohen Brothers movie that's going to have Francis McDormand in it. But the problem with that is she's so fucking good. She's so fucking good. You can't even be mad that she's in all these great movies because she elevates everything she's fucking in. A bit of a non sequitur, but do you know why? Uh... Ethan Cohen wasn't involved. Uh, I don't. I, I assumed that this was just that Joel Cohen wanted to do his thing for this. I can't really argue or complain. Yeah, yeah that's what I assumed. Um, this is hey, also a hell of a job. We know the Stronger <laughs> Brothers. Bitch. Yeah, I mean, one fucking hell of a job. 
Uh, also, huge shout outs to the uh, director of photography on this or the cinematographer. Um, let me pull up his name because I don't have it right in front of me. I looked it up and I, it's not something I can remember. Uh, Bruno Del Bonnell, uh, who yeah. did really just an amazing job on this. Um, he has been, he's been nominated for five Oscars, man. Cinematographers feel like they're always getting shafted. He has been nominated for uh, Le Fabuleux Destin d'Amélie Poulain, which I think is the American title, uh, Emily. Yeah, it is. Um, he was nominated for another Frenchy ass movie called Un Long Dimanche de Fiancé, which, boy, howdy, what is that? Um, a very long engagement. Oh, I think, no, I haven't seen that shit. And then he was nominated for the Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince, Inside Lewin Davis, and Darkest Hour. So, yes. um, yeah, much, much easier for me to say. But who did really a great job. And I was, I read that one of the things that he did to, to make it, you know, the, the contrast feel so stark without having to really bump up your contrast. Cause it, when you're adjusting uh, brightness and contrast settings, uh, it gets very obvious at a certain point visually when you've done so much to your contrast that you start to have uh, grain in certain places or the way like light doesn't look like it's reflecting quite correctly. And what he ended up doing is he actually painted shadows on the on the floor to make the way that the lighting played feel that much more dramatic. And he also painted some of the shadows on people's clothing for the same effect, which really, I think that combined with the fact that this was filmed black and white and not filmed in color and then desaturated really added to just that ominous and dark feeling by having such startling stark contrasts in, in, in its visuals. Yeah, he is a rock star and I love him. And he's on, uh, he's now directed two of my just favorite visual films, just like ever. So, hey, Italian guy, love you. Clearly French, but yeah. <laughs> Man, I, uh, you know, I'm not sure how often I revisit movies like these that are a little bit dense in their in their in their dialogue that I don't have the easiest time following but this was so fucking beautiful in its film in in, in its appearance and it felt so much I don't know what, what the word I'm looking for is it felt so much feeling from the acting that I'm probably going to end up rewatching this oh yeah I mean now that I know at a much better extent what this movie is about and what I should be expecting at each turn. This is definitely something I'll rewatch. What did you think about, about Catherine Hunter in this? Cause I think that performance really elevated the movie a lot for me. Oh, completely. I thought that was unbelievably good. I really only knew her from the old lady in the Harry Potter movie. And then I looked up that she is a, you know, at least well-known to the internet, uh, Shakespearean actor or actress. Um, and I can see why. Yeah, I, I, was, I, was, I had no idea who she was and looked her up after this movie to find out that she is a, a, a trained Shakespearean actress. And 
you know, getting to do Shakespeare on screen, if you're a Shakespearean trained actor or actress, I'm sure must be a wildly rewarding experience. And to be done so well like this, I mean, because really, you know, the part, again, there's not a lot of parts in this film, especially when you consider modern day movies, how many side characters or even speaking extras you get for, you know, a play like this, a movie like this, there's not a lot of parts, which means that everyone kind of has to be on it because there's not a lot of room for error or people who can cover up your screen time because there's not a lot of people in this fucking movie. And having Catherine Hunter be the person who really sets the tone in a, in a, in a literal sense and in just an emotional sense when you're watching this, she fucking kills it. I mean, she is sinister and creepy and mysterious and with intrigue and a little bit like mystic. I, I mean... And her fucking voice, man, is amazing. It was amazing. It's perfect. It could have it so perfectly. I could have listened to her talk the whole movie. I loved that voice. I don't know if that's her real voice or not. I loved it. I I would think I maybe no, what? Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, like, she speaks in Harry Potter. She has a role. Like, she definitely I remember her from Harry Potter. She was the old lady that, like, uh, helps Harry when him, Dursley, uh, whatever the brother's name is, um, get attacked by Dementors in that, like, tunnel. It's like the opening scene of the movie when they go to the park. Oh, man, I just straight up don't remember, and I have not watched the Harry Potter movies since I was a teenager, probably. We watched them, like, two weeks ago, so it's very... very Oh, so it's fresh. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I have not seen those since I was probably a teenager. Uh, Yeah, never revisited. Don't care. Um, But, yeah, I would would hope, anyway, maybe expect is strong. I would hope especially based on the other performances we've seen from having watched a bunch of these so far uh, that this movie gets more nominations at the Oscars than just the one for Denzel. Cause it, it really be. deserves it. Especially, it really especially is. making Shakespeare consumable for a modern audience. Cause that's one of the things that Romeo plus Juliet, the Leonardo DiCaprio one gets a lot of credit for is it took Shakespeare and made it, consumable for an audience who would be watching it in you know whenever that movie came out 2005 whatever um and this managed to do that without making half the concessions that romeo plus juliet had to had to make it did not set it in modern times it did not try to make it more relatable it 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 did not try to update any of what was the, the uh the plot to be current none of it none of it made zero concessions and was absolutely captivating. That's hard. Yeah, no kidding. And that takes serious vision, too, from everybody, not just Joel Cohen. They take serious vision from the director of photography, the set coordinator, the the, the art coordinator, the uh, costume people, the makeup people. And the actors. I mean, like, serious, serious vision for this. This was a very, very, very well done film. 
So I would I would hope to see more love for it at the Oscars, but we'll see. It absolutely has to. Um, but you have anything else you want to add in? Uh, I'm ready to score this thing. Yeah, I mean, not really. I don't know about you, but because it's Shakespearean dialogue, it makes it tough to have really in-depth criticisms as to any of that stuff. And because it's you know a very, very faithful adaptation of a 400-year-old excruciatingly famous play, it's not like we can sit here and be like, why would the character do that? Um, because guess what? That's not a concern. Otherwise, this play would not have endured for 400 fucking years. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't have a lot else to say. No, no. Uh, you, why don't you give a, your, your star rating and uh, any other summarized review you might have? Um, I mean, despite not really being able to follow the intricacies of what was going on between the characters, I'm still giving this a four and a half out of five. I think it would be a very, very easy five if, again, I could kind of follow it and all of the little details that, you know, I otherwise enjoy watching in films. Um, I would call it a must watch, especially a year when this doesn't exactly seem very competitive. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with the, the, the rating and the rationale four and a half for me too. This was really phenomenal. And I think this is, required viewing for the award season and should, is probably going to end up being required viewing for a lot of high schools around America. Yeah. I mean, I remember watching Romeo plus Juliet in middle school, so I could absolutely see lots I of watched both. I watched school. the 67 version of Romeo and Juliet and the DiCaprio version in high school. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I didn't need to watch both. Like, you get it the first time, but I watched both. Yeah, it's not a story that changes the more you read it. No, 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 it is not. And also, we all know what happens. Yeah. Anyway. Everybody dies. The end. All right, Corwin Heller, next week's yes. picks. What you got? Uh, I'm staying in the royal theme, and I'm going to go with King Richard. <laughs> yeah, very much so about royalty, King Richard. Yeah. Fuck you. <laughs> uh, all right. I am going to watch a movie. I still don't know what it's about, and I'm not going to look it up. And we're just going to roll with it. I'm going to watch Coda, which is another Apple TV production. You can find it there. Uh, King Richard is on HBO Max, so you can watch that there. Those are the streaming uh, options for these movies. As you can tell, we're burning through those because, boy, howdy, is it easier. Um, Oscar nominations come out next week, which means that Corwin and I can really refine our list starting with the next episode we record as we have the nominations. So that'll be good. Um, and yeah, we'll just keep burning through these award season picks until we have the actual ceremony to talk about who wins. Uh, Corwin, you got anything else before we get out of here? Never. I, I know. You never do. All right. Well, if you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Big Screen Juice. If you want to send emails to the show, you can do so at juiceinthebigscreen at gmail.com. If you would like to follow Corwin on Twitter, you can do so at Corwin Heller. If you'd like to follow myself on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua D. Tracy. And until next time, y'all have a good one. Bye.